hey guys welcome back to just a girl in true crime in the afternoon um sorry i haven't uploaded since like january 23rd if you follow the facebook page the week of christmas my three-year-old and myself had tested positive for covid and i got that one episode out when i was feeling like a little better um, but before I got better, I actually got worse. I literally laid on my couch for two weeks and slept a lot. As for my three-year-old, he really wasn't affected. He slept for like two days and then he ran around and played with his brother and it was like COVID didn't even hit him. It took two years to, almost two years to get me and I never thought I'd have COVID, but I did. Luckily, my six-year-old and my husband didn't get it. Um, I was quarantined in my house till January 3rd, and I thought I was out of the, cl I thought I was out and into the clear, basically. And then I started to have really bad breathing problems where if I spoke too much, I got out of breath and it hurt my lungs. I was dehydrated, and so I had to keep fluids, and I was like, I can't podcast until I can actually talk because I didn't didn't think y'all would want to hear my voice like raise and go oh my god I can't breathe so that's why I haven't been podcasting and then um I had some personal things that happened as well I ended up leaving my full-time job because my kids babysitter basically flaked on me and I had to stay home and now I'm working part-time, and I'm working in the evenings, so I might just switch my podcasting, and I work Saturdays and Sundays as well. So I might just tweak my podcasting times into the day, since my oldest goes to school at, like, the afternoon, and he only goes half a day, and then it's just my three-year-old, and he's currently, currently napping. But that's all I want. Sorry for the delay. I am going to try to bust out, like, maybe another one. Uh, sometime this week. I'm off today, so that's why I did it, and I might just do some research and upload maybe Friday. I don't know what case, but I'm thinking about it. Um, so before we begin, I got Tubi, and there was a, um, there was a new doc series about Chris Watts called what was it called? Hold on. Um, that suburban nightmare, Chris Watts. I watched that a couple days ago, and I was like, "Huh, all right." I mean, it went like a little bit more in depth. I wasn't impressed by it, but you know, had to watch it, had to see what went on. They just like dug a little bit deeper. But that's enough banter, I believe. Um. Tonight, like I said, if you follow the Facebook group or you're, like, a part of it, we are actually going to be doing an unsolved case, and we're going to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which is not too far from me. I think it's, like, two and a half hours away. And everything. And that's where we're going. So, it's called the Boy in the Box case. And it's crazy. So let's begin. All right. I've never heard about this before. I literally just Googled, like, true crime 
unsolved cases, and this was like a top one, so I clicked on this. So, in Ivy Hill Cemetery in Cedarbrook, Philadelphia, there sits a large plot kept almost entirely covered in stuffed animals donated by local families and visitors. The headstone reads, Americans, um, Americans Unknown Child, a permanent reminder of the child who lies beneath it. He was found dead and alone in a box, and nobody could identify him. This case of the boy in the box was one of Philadelphia's most baffling cases, stumping police for over 60 years and still today, leaving hundreds of unanswered questions. So, I'm going to take you back to February 1957, when a young muskrat hunter set out, set out, I'm sorry, not sent out, set out to check his traps, set near a park just north of Philadelphia. As he moved through the brush, he found a small cardboard box lying discarded on the ground. And inside the box was this boy who was naked, and he was wrapped in a plaid blanket. Fearing that police would confiscate his traps if he alerted police, the young hunter simply just ignored it, and he resumed hunting. And we call this guy's the bystander effect. And that, you know, for people who don't know what it is, pretty sure you guys do. And the bystander effect is where, you know, you see something and you don't report it. But several days later, a college student was driving down the road and he, no- he or she noticed a bunny running alongside the highway. And the student knew the traps were in the area. And they stopped the car to make sure, you know, that the bunny was safe. As he sifted through the underbrush searching for traps, he came across the box. Though he too feared interaction with the police, that student did report it to them. He reported that they, he found a body and that they needed to get out there. So, you know, the question is, who is this young boy in this box? Well, given that the boy was between the ages three and seven years old, police were hopeful that he would be quickly identified. However, once they saw the body, their hopes were dashed. While people would surely be looking for a missing boy who was healthy, well cared for, and clearly loved, it was unlikely that they would be looking for a scrawny, dirty, malnourished one. Unfortunately, the boy in the box was just that. His hair was matted and it seemed to be recently cut as clumps of it still clung to his body. His body, like I said, was severely malnourished and he was covered with surgical scars, most notably on his ankle, groin, and chin. Despite the fact that he looked abandoned, Police fingerprinted him in hoping to find a match, and sadly, no one ever did. Over the next several years, they put 400,000 flyers 
um, and they were all sent out to F the Philadelphia area, as well as other towns in Pennsylvania. A forensic facial reconstruction was done, and a drawing of a happy young boy included on all of the posters. Um, I, ha I have the photo. I am going to upload it to my Instagram. And it even they even included these flyers in envelopes with, like, gas bills and stuff like that. But still nobody came forward with information of who this boy was. The crime scene itself was also searched several times. But apart from, apart from several items of children's clothing, which all led to nowhere, there were no leads. No one reported this boy missing. Nobody knew him. It almost is like nobody cared, which is sad, and that hurts my heart. To this day, the boy's identity remains as much as a mystery as it did in 1957. Though the case has ran cold, the publicity and interest in the case by an amateur investigator have turned up a couple theories throughout the years. And that there's two of them, and then I found a couple more. Because I didn't want it to be like a short case. So, let's talk about theory number one. In 1960, an employee of the medical examiner's office was told by a psychic that the boy in the box had come from a local foster home. The police inquired about the boy in the box at the foster home. And when they went there, they found blankets similar to the one he was wrapped in. So they found similar plaid blankets. And they were just like hanging on a clothesline. So, and as well as the bassinet that was sold in the same box that the boy, the boy had. I, I don't like calling him the boy, but I don't want to call him like a name. That this little boy had um, been found in. The employee theorized that the boy had been born to the daughter of a man who ran the foster home. And that his death had been accidental. Despite the employee's, um, you know, despite all them facts. No connection was ever made between the boy in the box and the foster home. And then nothing happened for 40 years. I mean, you would think with that theory, since like he, there were similar, they were similar um, sheets that he was wrapped in that they had. And the box with the bassinet is what he was buried in. And I believe that was from like um, J.C. Penney's. I think I read, you would think like they would have went further and investigated it, but I guess nothing happened. And, you know, like I said, leads went, leads went cold until, um, until it was almost 40 years later that another shocking theory emerged. So theory number two, a woman who was only referred to as M came forward claiming that the boy had been purchased by her abusive mother and was abused for several several years in her home. 
M claimed that after the boy vomited up his dinner of baked beans, her mother had bashed his head against the wall as punishment. That seems a little far. Then she attempted to bathe him, during which he died. The police initially followed this lead. As there were remains of baked beans in his stomach, and his finger, his fingers appeared to be like watered wrinkled. So you know, like I always, I always tell my boys when they both get um, baths and stuff. Oh, you look like a prune because you get like the wrinkly on your hands and everything. And I, that's when I tell them to get out when their hands start to wrinkle and they look pruney. So, you know, these were both pieces of information that were never shared with the police. I'm sorry, not the police. They were never shared with the public. They also encouraged by M's description of the boy as a small child with long hair. This fit their theory that his hair had been recently chopped, as well as an old testimony from a man who claimed to see the boy being placed in the box near the woods. Unfortunately, police eventually let this theory slide. As they were unable to verify M's claims, after looking into M's background, they found a history of severe mental illness. When they attempted to corroborate her claims with neighbors and friends, all of them denied ever seeing a child in the home. And this theory was eventually dismissed as ridiculous. Like, that's crazy. <clears throat> Several other theories have been presented over the years, though all of them eventually discounted. It seems that the mystery of the boy in the box might never be solved. And that's American's unknown child. And it could remain that way forever. I don't know why they would not. Like, I get, okay, if M had mental illness. But if they told, if M told them stuff that was never shared to the public, there has to be some truth to that. I mean, the baked beans in his stomach, like, the baked beans that you found in his stomach, the watered wrinkle fingers. I mean, it has to be some connection. I don't know why. I mean, maybe the neighbors and friends really didn't see anybody, see a child in the home. Um, maybe he was kept hidden, you know. Abusers do that sometimes. They keep them hidden from the world. But for it to be dismissed, that's crazy. So that technically would have been the end until I, until I did some more research that I'm going to share with you guys as well. Um, and there were like a couple more theories. I didn't write all of them down because some of them I said. But some of these other theories are very interesting. And two theories, well, no, not two, three theories really stand out to me. Okay. So... He was, the boy was only 30 pounds, and he stood 40.5 inches tall. According to a medical examiner, the boy in the box had a body of a child who was just over two years old. 
and they did x-rays on him. Oh, I lost my place. Oh, and it showed ev and it showed evidence of a arrested gro yeah, an arrested growth. And he may have been raised as a girl. Yeah, that's the other theory. Which, I mean, kind of makes sense to me a little bit. So like I said, it's a popular theory that this boy had been raised as a girl. Which is why investigators had a difficulty pinpointing his identity. One of the biggest proponents of this theory is Frank Bender a forensic artist and co-founder of Vitaqua Society, a private, group, a private group of skilled professionals who are dedicated to solving crimes. According to Frank, the reason someone cut the child's hair around the time of the, time of the death was to hide the fact that he had been raised a girl. Frank also said, Pictures taken of the boy in the box showed evidence that someone had plucked the child's eyebrows either before or after his death. This indicates that someone had altered the boy's appearance to make him appear more feminine. Bender, or Frank, also drew a sketch of what he thought the boy in the box would have looked like with long hair and bangs in an effort to help identify the child. If someone had tried to misrepresent his gender, you know, that that makes sense. I mean, try to alter the appearance. Think they're looking for a boy, but they could be looking for a girl. Another theory is he may have been the son of a carnival worker. Going back in time to 1961, Philadelphia investigators questioned Kenneth Dudley and his wife Irene Dudley to determine if the boy in the box had been one of their middle-aged couple, one of the middle-aged couple's um, children, because they had 10 children. Mr. Dudley, like I said, was a carnival worker, so the entire family traveled up and down the East Coast while he looked for work. However, the Dudleys came to their attention the to the attention of law enforcement when one of their children, seven year old Carol Ann, died as a result of neglect, malnourishment, and exposure. Instead of burying the young child's body in a cemetery, the couple wrapped the daughter in the blank in a blanket and placed her body in a wooded area in Virginia. Give me one second. <clears throat> Authorities learned that seven of the Dudleys' ten known children had died as a result of the, mal the malnutrition and the neglect, and none received proper burials, causing... Philadelphia investigators to suspect the boy in the box to be one of their sons. However, after questioning the Dudleys, 
and investigating their movements in 1957, law enforcement officials in Philadelphia determined the couple, while they were, you know, neglectful parents and all that, they were not connected to the boy in the box. His body was exhumed in 1998, more than 41 years after the police discovered his body. Close to a county road near Philadelphia. Officials, like I said, they exhumed him. They collected DNA evidence from his remains. Forensic analysts were able to extract, um, you know, that mitochondrial DNA from one of the child's teeth. And they used used his DNA profile to eliminate leads that had included living relatives. Of the boy. They. The authorities had buried the boy. In Potter's Field. Before. You know. He was exhumed in 1998. After they. Got all the stuff they needed. And then city officials. Instructed he be buried. At Ivy Hill Cemetery in Philadelphia. On November 11th. In 1998. Officials laid the boy to rest, and they actually donated a casket since no one came forward to claim the boy in the box. The Philadelphia detectives who handled the child's case also paid for his funeral. They initially buried the boy, like I said, in Potter's Field with a stone marker that said, Heavenly Father, bless this own unknown boy. and The symbol headstone also included the date of the discovery that he was found, which was February 25th, 1957. After officials, you know, did their exhume the body and they buried him when they were like, you're going to bury him in Ivy Hill Cemetery. They did it with a new granite headstone. And that's when it where it says Americans unknown child. A bench which um, Frank, with his society, they like they donated donated the bench as well as the child's original marker. Are also still at his gravesite, and even though he still has not been identified, his case sparked countless tips and leads. And even though he is still unknown. Philadelphia actually has not forgotten the child, which is great. And members of, you know, Frank Society hold an annual memorial service to pay their respects to this boy. And a Philadelphia man also created a website dedicated to American America's, no, I'm sorry, not America's, Americans Unknown Child. And the investigation into his death. While it has been decades since the police first found the boy's body off that country road in Philadelphia, investigators and citizens alike are still dedicated to uncovering the identities of both the child and whoever is responsible for his death, if we ever find out. And guys, that... That wraps up that case. I mean, 
That's crazy. So here are my three theories that I believe. I believe the the first two theories, I believe either the one of them are possible, and I don't care if they cleared the Dudleys. That seems oddly suspicious that seven out of ten of your children died. That seems pretty sketch to me, guys. Not gonna lie. And everything. Um, I'm gonna check out the website. I'm pretty sure it's Americans Unknown Child. Let me let me type it in. Let me see it real quick. All right. So I'm on the website, and it doesn't look like. There's not a lot, so there's, like, two posts from, like, the same person, and they were in 2012, and it says case updates. There's a case updates for America's, oh, maybe it is America's. I don't know why I said on my research, Americans. Um, Case update for American... America's Unknown Child website, and then there's a case summary. What do I do when I click on it? And you can also make donations. Like, there's a donation, like, support the boy in the box, unidentified boy found, and everything. But my thing's still loading, so I don't know what's wrong with it. Alright, so I'm going to look at more of the stuff um, and everything like that. Because it looks like it's a lot of the stuff like I... Oh, here's one. In May 1999, an anonymous caller informed the Philadelphia Police Department about a woman who had lived only a few miles away from the crime scene in early 1975. Allegedly, the woman had a little boy who was about the same age as the unknown boy in the box. According to this anonymous caller, shortly before the unknown boy's body was discovered, Both the woman and her son mysteriously disappeared. The caller identified the missing woman by name and said that she was almost certain that the woman had been the mother of the unknown boy. A detective named Tom Augustine followed up on the anonymous tip, but he soon discovered that this information was not new. The story about the missing woman and her son had originally been reported to the local police in 1957. They had checked out the story and verified that the woman and her son had merely moved away. And there was no connection between them. Oh, man. And then the... They also... The detective also discovered that the missing woman's son had died of injuries that he received in a automobile accident at the age of 21 oh man that's rough um hold on okay um yeah there's a lot of stuff man i didn't even know about this 
Oof, that is crazy. All right, let me see what the other link says. And this is just a case summary. Like, it has links. Like, if you want to know the case and everything. So, yeah, the second one just looks like it's just, like, links and everything. And then, the, like, it talks about the discovery site, the victim. Um... On the palm of his right hand and the sores of... Both of his small feet, they were rough-skinned and wrinkled, and the police called a washerwoman effect, indicating that just before and after death, that one hand... Um, and that was just basically saying that just or before after death, one hand or and both feet have been submerged in the water for an extended period of time. If you hear my son screaming, he's very mad that I put him back in his room because he needs a nap. But, yeah, I mean, you could definitely Google it, and there's that stuff if you want to um, look into it more. So, and the cold weather made it very difficult to tell how long he was actually dead. It may have been two or three days. Or it, was po it could have been possibly as long as two or three weeks. And then it talks about the evidence and, like, the retail. And whoever bought the box, since JCPenney had only a cash policy at that time, there were no store records indicating the identity of the purchaser. That sucks. I didn't even know that. Oh, I guess that makes sense. And then it talks about the blanket. Oh, here's something that I didn't find. Um, a man's cap of royal blue um, corridor with a leather strap and buckle in the back. It was a size 7 and 1 8. It contained tissue paper placed there by the manufacturer to maintain its shape. The cap was found about 17 feet from the thicken where the boy's body was discovered. A pathway through the underbush led directly from the cap to the cardboard carton. The cap was sent to the FBI lab for a, to be analyzed, but nothing significant was found. Though the cap's label, detectives learned that it was made by the Robinsons Bald Eagle Hat and Capco on 2603 South 7th Street, Philadelphia. Police interviewed Miss Hannah Robbins, owner of the firm, who said the cap was one of 12 made from, you know, the corridor sometime before May 1956, and she told detectives that it was made without a strap but the man she sold it to just a few months earlier asked her to sew a strap on it. She said the male resembled the photographer of the dead child on a police circular. Miss Robbins told detectives that the man was alone, 
He wore working clothes. He didn't speak with a foreign accent, and he had blonde hair, and he appeared to be in his late 20s. So why wasn't that guy ever... Why wasn't he ever looked into? I mean, she gave a clear description of this person. Whoa. Oh, man. So, yeah, if you want to look this up, I mean, they talk about the evidence that were found from the victim's body. Um, then and now. But nothing. It's still a mystery, guys. I don't know. I don't know if we're ever going to find out. I wish we'd find out. I haven't tried to, like, find updates, and... I could not find any updates for... 2022. Oh, that's another thing. Can y'all believe we're in 2022 already? Oof, that is crazy. Hopefully 2022 is a better year for me. It started out kind of, <laughs> kind of rough. Alright, so yeah. Those are the cases. Those are the most active topics basically about the website and then the case summary which is really good but they have nothing's been really uploaded on this since july 17 2012 oh she's still active on the page well guys i think that's it heartbreaking case for sure. Um, but I think that's where I'm gonna wrap it up because there's really not there's not really much to go on and everything like that. Um, if you wanna follow or join the Facebook group, it's just a girl on true crime. You can send me a Gmail at just a girl and true crime at gmail dot com. You can follow the Instagram page at Just a Girl and True Crime. I think. Oh, I, yeah, I think that's it. Oh, I don't know if I guys told you my last. I might have, but I forget my last case where I did the story of the child called it. Listen, I apologize if I pronounced his name wrong. I listened to I listened to the audio audible books. With um, a child called it when I worked at my full time just to have something to listen to. When I got like needed a break from true crime, I have tons of books that it just shuffles through. They pronounced it that way. That's how I thought it was pronounced. But like I told this person who emailed me saying he's a respected author. I get that. I totally get that. But like I told her, if you don't like my podcast if you don't like the episode you don't like the way i pronounce stuff i like i told her you don't have to listen that's simple and the only response i think i got was lame and i never replied back because i'm not about to deal with trolls but guys i think that's it i'm about to research another case um i have a couple in mind 
I do want to do the Summer Wells um, and everything like that. I do want to revamp, like redo one of my podcasts um, because of new information and stuff. I want to go deeper into the case. I don't know when I'm going to do that, but I'm going to, I want to redo that whole case and break it down piece by piece. And, like, go into the past a little bit more. And then I'm probably just going to delete that old episode. So, I'm about to eat lunch because I'm hungry and I haven't ate. Actually, I'm not going to eat lunch. I'm actually going to snack on this new Chex Mix. That's white cheddar. That sounds super good. But I think that's it. Um, I hope you all are still with me. I'm so sorry that this is the first podcast of January and it almost been like a month COVID hit my job and stuff and my kids that took a huge hit and I'm it was a lot but I'm back I'm gonna work through it I'm just gonna be podcasting during the day because it's easier and then maybe I won't get scared at night when I do like a case because my three-year-old says he has monsters in his closet and I'm like oh gosh and um I know I talked real quick. I know there's so much that I want to tell you guys. Um, you know, I might just save that for another episode. I'm not even going to say anything. I'm going to probably do another para one of my paranormal experiences again, because boy, have I had a lot and it's actually pretty scary and it freaks me out a bit. So maybe I'll do something like that in a little bit after I do all this stuff. We are going to touch in the next couple weeks. I am going to do Charles Manson. I plan to do Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, and I want to do the West Memphis case and everything. And what else? I think that's it. That's all I have for mind right now. I don't. I just don't want to do all them big cases right away. And then I'm going to do some cults. I've been watching this cult-like um, series on Hulu, and I did a couple, like, The Child of God and everything. I think Kevin Skate's on there, but, you know, that's it. I think I'm done. I think I've talked enough. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends. Give me a review. Nice review, bad review. I prefer nice reviews, but, uh, you know, Someone always good. There's always gonna be that one negative Nancy. Um, I think that's it. And I'll be talking to you guys later.